And now, The Mentors, one of the most popular and unique shows on the radio today. Each week, one of our four remarkable CEOs, including Tom Lord, John Phillips, and Rick Brutico, will challenge your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their success and for consistently putting people first, treating employees and customers with respect, and helping others succeed, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Now, here's your mentor. Welcome. I am Tom Laurie, and I will be your host today. It is great to have you join us. Life can be downright difficult at times. It can box you in. Our guest mentor this week, the Reverend Earl Smith, knows of these difficulties personally and professionally. As a drug dealer, he was left for dead after a gang member emptied a loaded gun into him. He had a miraculous recovery and changed his life's direction. His workplace has been high-security prisons, including 23 years at San Quentin, serving those on death row. For over 150 years, San Quentin has been host to some of California's worst criminals. It's earned a reputation as the state's oldest and toughest prison. It contains California's only gas chamber and death row for condemned inmates. Reverend Smith writes about his experience on death row in his book, Death Row Chaplain, Unbelievable Stories from America's Most Notorious Prison. It will be available on our website. Reverend Smith has continued his ministry at Folsom Prison, which was made famous by Johnny Cash's song, The Folsom Prison Blues, and two other prisons in California. He also serves as the chaplain for the San Francisco 49ers and the world champion Golden State Warriors. Reverend Earl Smith, thank you for taking time from your busy schedule to join us today. Thank you, Tom, for having me on. I appreciate the interest in our ministry, and I just appreciate what you're doing to reach out to the public. Well, let's put things in context, and let's start with your childhood and the event that changed the direction of your life. Tell us about how you found your way into uh, being a drug dealer and what happened uh with regards to being uh, shot and left for dead? Uh, first time I was arrested or picked up by the police, I was eight years old. And because I had stabbed someone, I grew up pretty angry because of a lack of relationship with my mother at that time. I did not realize that based on the tools that she had, she was doing the best that she could do with me. So I grew up angry. I was very close to my father, but he worked three jobs. So from eight years old to 19, I was involved in gangs. Eventually, I became a leader. Uh, I was kicked out of public school, uh, went to private school, and basically developed my drug market uh, in the very in the richest parts of town and grew that into other cities as well. 19 years old, I had a guy on me, buddy. Uh, he didn't pay on time, so I sent word that I was going to get him. Well, he brought someone to the house and said, I came to pay you well. What he came to do was kill me. So the guy he brought with him had been paid to shoot me, and the guy shot me six times. One bullet went in my body, exited, so I had seven holes in me, and they left me for dead. And as you were working your way in the world of uh, gangs, uh, what you must have had some mentors. They may not have been good mentors, but what uh, what did older people or you know, what did they do to guide you? And uh, You had some influence there. Obviously, it was not well, your dad. I, but... I, had, I, I had, I had, my, my dad was a superintendent of Sunday school. He was the president of the American Federation of Government Employees Local Union. Uh, my dad was a really hardworking guy, but the guys that mentored me were the guys that were the drug dealers, the thieves, the shooters in my in the neighborhood and I hung out at the park with them. They you know, I was a little kid, they'd give me money to tell me to go down to the store and get them something to drink and the store manager knew me and he knew all I so he let from a kid on and I get to keep the change. So I always was looking at the flash of that and 
they they showed me how to live a street life, but they didn't show me how to be a man. I thought they were, but they didn't. And as I recall, when you were uh, shot, uh, the police came, I guess three different groups of police came. Could you tell us a little bit about that and the uh, miracle that took place as part of your recovery? Sure. Uh, when I was shot, uh, I was under surveillance. The police actually were on the corner uh, having me under surveillance. They were trying to get enough information to arrest me. They had stopped me numerous times. But they couldn't find any drugs on me when they stopped me. Uh, when I got shot, they let the guys who shot me leave. I walked, I got up, knocked on my neighbor's door and said, you need to call the police. I've been shot. They showed up and they just looked at me, walked in my house and confiscated some of the drugs and some of the money that I had in my house and they left. Um, another set of officers came in. My neighbor's like, well, where's the ambulance? And they said, lady, if you want an ambulance, you need to call the ambulance. And they went in and, they took some also, I guess. The third set of police confiscated uh, the evidence and booked it and bagged it. I didn't realize all of this until I ended up going to court where I realized that I went from being a drug dealer to being a victim of crime because I didn't. The money and the drugs that would have made me a drug dealer were not present when they booked it. But something happened while you were in the hospital with your father. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, that, that was probably, my, my father, like I said, he, he was my best friend. He, he was actually my best friend. He was my hero. And when I got shot, I, I lived across the street from my parents' home, and my father showed up in the hospital, and he said to the doctor in the emergency room, he says, how bad is it? The doctor said he's not going to make it. And my dad grabs him and says, Doc, you better do what you do best. I'm going to do what I do best. And my dad went away to pray. And the doctor left me. I'm on this metal gurney burning up because of the bullets. They're like fire, like, like pokers in your body. And all of a sudden, there was a peace that came over me. And the Lord told me, just like we're talking, you're not going to die. I have something for you to do. He says, you're going to be a chaplain in San Quentin prison without you. I mean, everybody predicted I'd get to San Quentin. It was a prophecy, but not like that. And so I, I started laughing. The doctor thought I was going into shock when he came back to check on me. And I said, if I tell you where the bullets are, will that help? And he looked at me and said, no. But I pointed at my nose. The bleeding stopped. I pointed at my face. The bleeding stopped. I pointed at my neck. The bleeding stopped. Where I pointed to, the bleeding stopped. So they didn't have to, like, suture me up. The bleeding stopped, and he didn't know what was going on, but it was that voice that said, you're not going to die. I have something for you to do. My dad looked at me, and he looked. He came in that room as this was going on. He said, son, you're a rebel, but you're God's rebel, and he's going to use you to his advantage. He didn't know about this voice, but that's what my dad told me. As it turned out, three days later, he took me home from the hospital, no one understood how I could get up and leave like that, but it was that voice that had put a stop to what the enemy was trying to do. Well, we're going to come back in a second after we take a break, and we're going to learn more about the miraculous recovery and the road to San Quentin and the cleansing of anger with our guest mentor today, Death Row Chaplain, Reverend Earl Smith. Hi, I'm the executive producer of The Mentors Radio Show. Usually I'm behind the scenes, but I want to tell you about something special. If you're an entrepreneur like me, you need steady energy and focus. Here's my secret. I rely on science-backed, high-quality, bulletproof collagen protein and other bulletproof products. My sister told me about it. At feelgreat.vip, you can learn the health journey of bulletproof founder Dave Asprey. Find out what sets these products apart from the rest. Nothing can replace the advice of your medical doctor, but good nutrition can absolutely enhance your mood, energy, and focus like it did for me. The demands of business, not to mention important time with family and friends, make steady energy so important. With more than 1 million fans, 1 million fans, I'm not alone in recommending Bulletproof. Go to feelgreat.vip. That's VIP, like very special person. Feel great. Dot VIP to learn more. 
Better life, better business. Hi, I'm Christoph Nauer. I'm a certified business and life coach, helping business owners increase productivity, profits, and improve personal life. I'm the founder of Balance Six, money, health, relationship, time management, self-improvement, and higher power. I coach business owners to work smarter, not longer, to have time for better personal life. I hold you accountable for making time available to Balance Six to nurture yourself and your relationships and making more money with less stress. Get off the hamster wheel and I will show you the secrets to real success. In case you're wondering about my accent, I came from Switzerland more than 30 years ago. But I assure you, my coaching will be in excellent English. Visit our website at balance6.biz. That's balance6.biz. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and today we are talking to the Reverend Earl Smith, the author of Death Row Chaplain and now Team Chaplain for the San Francisco 49ers and World Champion Golden State Warriors. We were just talking about his uh, being shot 16 times and uh, his miraculous recovery, and as I think about your story, one of the things that you were, I, I realize you had some difficulties with your mother, which you mentioned, but you uh, had a father. I mean, you had a father that was there for you. Uh, and I know after you were shot and you were at home, tell us a little bit about your recovery and the role that your father played. Well, first of all, I was shot six times. Uh, one bullet entered the next of my body, so I had seven holes in me, but the thing that was really significant about my, and I, I call him a dad because a father is a biological term, but my dad was, like I said, he was my hero, and he took me home from the hospital, and because there was still a contract out there, the guys hadn't been arrested. My dad actually put a chair by the door of my bedroom, and he sat there with his gun to protect me, and I would go to sleep. When I woke up, he's sitting in that chair. It was like he never left. He guarded me until I was strong enough to get up. And through all of that, he was just speaking the word of life into my into my spirit, into my being. He kept telling me that I wasn't a loser. And here's the deal. My dad worked three jobs. He, he did everything he could to take care of me. I just didn't accept it. I didn't accept the things that he was offering because I thought the streets... And what those guys were teaching me and saying to me was more important, more relevant. Uh, yeah, he didn't give up, even though I embarrassed. I have a sister that's a retired judge. Everyone, I have every every sibling I have has an upper level degree. Uh, they all at least have a uh, BA or above. Uh, so I was the embarrassing. I was the one, but he didn't allow the embarrassment of my lifestyle to keep him from loving me. Well, I love the way you said that you had a dad. I think uh, I had a dad, too. And I know what you mean when you say you had a dad. Uh, it's a very, I, I love the way you said that. Now, during, now, I know along the way you were a Boy Scout and you were in Kiwanis and you were a youth pastor. Did these, were you a Boy Scout when you were in the gangs or did this come later? No, no, I, I was a Boy Scout. Uh, wow. My dad was actually my scoutmaster. He was he was a scoutmaster until he couldn't do it any longer because of his job. And I like scouting because I like the outdoors. And my dad had taught me how to shoot a gun early in life, so I liked that whole deal of the outdoors and being out camping. So I was involved with scouting, and the more I was involved in scouting, the less I was involved in the things that I was focusing on later. So I stayed involved with scouting until I was. 12 or 13 years old, even though I had already started the started track for it. I, I was a criminal by then anyway, but I I never missed a scout meeting. We had a guy from the foothills named Jack Newby that came, this white guy, into our inner city area. He became the replacement scout master. Amazing man, amazing heart, amazing character that he showed us that, and he was 
I went because I knew it was important to him. And if it was important to him, then I showed up. Even if the other guys didn't want to go, I showed up because that guy was pretty amazing. So having someone that comes in and can pour into your life in a lot of different fields, uh, it's, re- it's really amazing. It's something that can change. Uh, I just didn't embrace it fully. I didn't accept it like I should have. This is Tom Laurie. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show. Today we're talking to the Reverend Earl Smith, former death row chaplain at San Quentin, and now the chaplain for the 49ers and the Golden State Warriors. Now, Earl, when you came home and after you recovered, uh, you were a changed person. What not was a, the mission? Tom. I would, Tom, I would really say that it took a year for me to be a changed person because the only thing I wanted to do when I came home was kill the guys that shot me. Uh, they turned themselves in. Had they not, my life probably would have been in another direction because my plan was to kill them. Uh, I didn't want to testify against them in court. I wanted them dead. And, but over a period of time, I realized I could no longer, I, I couldn't attack the streets the way I used to. There was something different about the streets after I got shot. And eventually, I kept hearing that voice that you're, you've got something for me to do. And so I was shot in October and in June of the next year when I couldn't deal with it any longer. I told my roommate one, one more, I said, hey, we need to go to church. He says, church? I said, yeah, and we were living in a town. We were, we were living in Modesto. We had an apartment in Turlock, and we had one in stock. And we were committing crimes up and down the freeway. It's all 99 quarter. And... um so he said, we don't even know where church is. I said, well, let's just get dressed. The first one we see, we'll stop there. And as it turned out, we, on the freeway, took an exit, saw a church. I said, okay, let's go in. And I went in, and as I was going through, the, going across the threshold of that church, I felt the same peace I felt that day, that evening, when I was shot. And I knew that's where I needed to be, because I hadn't really felt that since I'd gotten shot, until I was crossing into the church. Well, one of the things I wanted to touch on is you mentioned the anger the and, and, and revenge and the dark place that you're in before you uh, found this church. And I, get, I have to imagine there's a lot of learning from that transition or transformation. And, you know, a lot of us, uh, you don't have to be somebody that was involved in a crime. Uh, we all can get involved in wanting revenge Talk, share with us a little bit about the darkness of revenge, regardless of what triggered it, but the darkness and where does that leave you and what it, do, what it does to a, a human person and their soul? Well, what it told me, first of all, is that I learned from that experience that we can be incarcerated and not be locked up in a mandate prison. And revenge will incarcerate you, will bind you up and bind you up in such a way that you'll feel so shackled. And sometimes revenge will make you carry something on further than the person that you have, you're seeking revenge from. In my particular case, in a lot of people's cases, we're angry with people that don't even realize that we exist any longer. They've moved on with their life. And revenge will hold you hostage and allow you not to move forward with the abilities and the grace God is giving you because you're holding on to something, and it's a weight. Revenge is a weight that weighs you down to the point that it's like an anchor that you can't move. Do you think people uh, realize they're being held hostage by the revenge? or What does it take for them to come to grips with that? Well, first of all, you have to put, you, people have to realize, in my case, I didn't care. And a lot of people act like they care, but in reality, if they look within themselves, they, they don't care. They're acting, they're so self-centered that the only thing they want is the victory that comes from payback. And that's really what revenge is. So do they care? What Do they know? They may know, but they don't, they, they don't really care, God. In my case, I didn't care. I didn't care what was going to happen to me. The only thing I wanted to do was get payback. And that's revenge. That's what revenge is like. Well, I, we're going to go to break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about your journey to San Quentin. And I am sure this subject of revenge is something 
that you not only dealt with personally, but dealt in terms of your ministry for people that uh, are incarcerated. If you have any questions or feedback, call anytime at 844-810-8255. That is 844-810-TALK. A lifetime ago, young naval aviator Tom McGuire took the oath of allegiance to support and defend the U.S. Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Now a San Francisco PD homicide inspector, McGuire hadn't thought about the oath in years, but that was all about to change. A famous local newspaper columnist had been murdered. For McGuire, there's an eerie chill of recognition about it, hearkening back to his days as a prisoner of war after being shot down in North Vietnam. A lifetime ago, another young naval pilot took that same oath. Also shot down in battle, he too spent time as a POW, same camp as McGuire. After 30 years, their lives were about to cross once again. But how and why after all these years? Multi-award winning mystery author Dennis Kohler's The Oath can be found online or for an autographed copy at oathbook.org. That's oathbook.org. Oathbook.org. Here at Mentors Radio, we've been working hard to help you succeed in every way possible. That's why we're proud to let you know about our newest find, BetterCreditDeal.com. BetterCreditDeal.com links you to a credit processing company, Cornerstone Payment Systems, that truly shares your ethical values and that can give you lower rates immediately. They don't just say it, they prove it to you. Their commitment to ethical behavior is rock solid. For example, unlike most other credit processing companies, something you may not have known before, Cornerstone refuses to process any porn-related business. They're not newbies either. The company we recommend has more than 50 years' experience and provides 24-7 in-house support. See what they can do for you today. Go to BetterCreditDeal.com. That's BetterCreditDeal.com. BetterCreditDeal.com. Ugh, Bob, I'm so frustrated. Sorry to hear that, Sarah. What's going on? I feel like I'm spinning. I I make goals to make money, work less, spend more quality time with family. But the truth is, I never actually achieve these goals. Year after year, I try to do things differently, but ultimately nothing changes. What's the point? Yeah, I did the same thing until I saw a friend completely change her life in less than a year. I was shocked. She sounded just like you a year ago, but not anymore. Wow, which she do? She decided to work with a Brian Tracy certified coach named Christoph Nauer. Certified by Brian Tracy? He must be good. Even better. He guarantees results. He listens. It's very customized to you. That gives me hope. As a listener of the Mentors Radio, you get a free one-on-one Take My Time Back session. Don't wait. Go to balance6.biz. That's balance, the number six, dot B-I-Z to book your free assessment. Balance6.biz. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Murray. Today we are talking to the Reverend Earl Smith, the author of Death Row Chaplain and now Team Chaplain for the San Francisco 49ers and World Champion Golden State Warriors. We have been delighted with the response that our show has received since we began If you missed any of the shows or any previous episode, you can download our podcast by going to our website, thementorsradio.com. That's thementorsradio.com, or to Apple Podcast, Android Podcast, Google Podcast, or Stitcher. Remember to subscribe while you're there so you do not miss any future shows. All of our content is available for free. So, Earl, we were talking in the last segment about revenge, and you... uh, have linked that to jealousy. Tell us a little bit about how that plays out. Well, I mean, there are so many people I mean, in corporate America. I'll, I'll use that as an example. Someone gets a promotion that you think you deserved, and you're jealous of that. Then you plot ways to prove that person wrong for the position. And that's all revenge. That, that's, that, that's all revenge sort of raising its head up. In the, in the street life, if someone takes over your area or seemingly is making more money than you, you're jealous of what they make, 
So then you try to figure out how can you set that person up to remove that person so that you can do what they're doing. That's revenge. So, you know, it, it, there's revenge on the streets. There's revenge in corporate America. There's people in the church that treat each other and they're jealous of someone's status, and they, they go about trying to destroy that person. Well, they're, they're trying to seek revenge in the process of that. So it's, it's all over. It's all over, and the only thing that works, the only thing that can change that is something that's called regeneration, and that happens by a change of the spirit, where your spirit is changed inwardly. Well, I'm, I'm sure you've seen uh, jealously as well in the uh... – uh, work that you've done with um, some of the top athletes in the in the world, uh, as as you said, it's pervasive. Uh, but you were you were the youngest chaplain at San Quentin. How did you end up being the youngest chaplain at San Quentin? Yeah, I was, I was the youngest chaplain ever hired by the state of California, still to this day. Uh, and the reason I tell people it happened is because that's where God said I was going to work. I never applied to work any other prison. When I went to do the interview, there was another guy there who was qualified based on all the criteria. And uh, they, he said, well, they've already told me I'm going to get the job. I said, well, I'll just do the interview. Well, let me back that up. I did not initially apply when I heard about the opening. A guy named Buzz Brewer, who was in my Kiwanis club, said, hey, did you ever fill that application out? I said, no. He says, here, you fill it out now. You need to fill this out. So I did. I mailed it in. I got a letter back. Dear Reverend Smith, we're sorry to inform you that you're not qualified. One of those letters. I ball it up. My hope, my spirit says, well, call him and ask him what do you need to do. Well, lo and behold, they sent me the wrong letter. They sent me the letter saying I wasn't when I should have sent one saying I was and scheduling an appointment. I go to the appointment. I meet this guy. They hire him. But it's a six-month probationary period. After five months, they decided they weren't going to hire him. They called me and asked me was I still interested in the job. I was director. I was a senior scout executive with the Boy Scouts of America. And I said, uh, yes, of course. I interviewed and I got the job. It wasn't because of anything Earl Smith did. It was because when I was 19 years old, God spoke to me through the Spirit to say I would be that chaplain at that prison. So from 19 to 27, God was providing and paving the way for me to be able to do what I ended up doing. How did you How did you relate to the pr- prisoners? I mean, you're going into a pretty tough situation. I'm sure there was a lot of intimidation. And you're all of a sudden this young kid showing up in this uh, uh, one of the toughest places that anyone could be and, and, and ministering to them. How did you win them over? What did you do? What were the, tr- the techniques and things that you've learned along the way that I'm sure can apply to all of us? First of all, I tried not to be anything I wasn't. I just tried to be who I was. I tried to be someone that had lived the life of the streets and had a changed life. I tried to make sure that my words matched my deeds. Uh, yet I also spent a lot of time just watching and observing and talking to the guys and asking them information. And based on what they gave me, it helped shape my ministry because going in and doing what I wanted to do was not going to be an answer for them. I had to figure out a way to give them the tools they needed to be more successful while they're there and help them get to the street. So uh, a lot of talking. I, I mean, I coached coached the football team. I played racquetball with them. I played basketball with them. played chess. I played dominoes, uh, scrabble. Whatever I thought their interest was, I tried to make it my interest as well. And many times it was just so I could learn more about what was what was important to them. Because if I could shape what was important to them, then perhaps I could help them prepare to go home. And and working with them and bonding with them, uh, I think a lot of people would be curious. Did you see any uh, common threads that ran through their lives that brought them to the point where they were at San Quentin? Sure. I, I think uh, a lot of the guys, and I, I'll use a survey I did on death row as an example. A lot of the guys on death row that were listed as Protestant 
had grown up in the church around the age of 13 to 15. They left the church. For some reason, there was a gap in deliverables at the church, or their parents no longer could force them to go. Uh, they hit the street. The other thing that was a common thread was that there was a lack of a male role model that, other than the streets. And, and like I said before, a lot of, every guy has a father, yet a lot of these guys didn't have a dad, did not have someone that they could confide in, and the male role models they had were not positive. And so that led them down different directions. And other thing, the family unit may have been fractured, but gangs made a family unit out of it. So those were some of the common threads that when you have a fractured family unit, in many cases you look for something that looks more stable, and gangs look stable. Uh, if you don't have a male role model in your home and you see one on the street, you become you want to emulate that person, and that person could be a very bad person doing very negative things. And that's what you started grow up doing. So uh, the common thread was what when the, the age that they leave the church or leave a ministry or leave a, a foundational point, uh, lack of that bad or that positive role model, male role model, and the fractured family unit where they look for another acceptance. So we've talked about the dad, the father, and I guess for some it's the mentor. And I know I've got a number of people that are very active in the boys clubs where uh, men volunteer their time to work with young boys who are lacking that type of influence. And uh, I know that that's another positive way for helping uh, those that don't have somebody to help them along the way. I want to move a little bit to the uh, your role on death row. Um, you, when you, from what I understand, when you started, there were 91 on death row and now there's six, 650. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the people on death row and, and particularly those that, uh, ended up being, uh, executed and what some of their thoughts were and the changes you saw that with them. And we'll come back after the break. We'll take, we'll take it about 30 seconds and we'll come back after the break to continue this. Go ahead, Earl. Well, I think one of the things that I would say, first of all, is ministering on death row was understanding you're dealing with people that there, there's a sense of finality to their placement versus other men that are just in the prison population generally. And there's actually over 700, and there's almost 800 people on death row now. Uh, the, the common thread was, once again, they were condemned to die, yet my question was, were they going to be condemned to die and go to hell, or was there something I could do to at least make them see the reality of Christ's relationship? So we started a Bible study on death row. I started a library where I had one of the inmates on death row, Lee Foreman with my librarian, and as it turned out, Lee gets going, he goes back to court, his case is overturned, and I go to court with testify for him. They let Lee go home. And so I had a number of guys that were on death row on my case note that went home. So I understood that every guy on death row was not guilty of the crime that they committed, yet I believe there's something about when you get there. You don't just show up there one day. There's a lot of there's a lot of stop signs you stop that you run through along the way to end up on death row. So I was dealing with men that uh, had a pervasiveness about running stop signs, and that, that's how they got to death row. Well, we're going to come back after break and continue our discussion with Earl Smith and his role as the chaplain on death row at San Quentin. Hey, professional business women! I know how busy your life is. To look your best, nails matter. The good news is I can save you a lot of nasty, chemical-smelling nail salon time. Just imagine, a perfect manicure in just minutes, at home, even while watching TV. No dry time, no smudges, no streaks, and your new manicure will last up to 10 days, often longer. I'm talking about 100% real nail polish. Yes, real nail polish, including top and base coat, all in one, that can gently be stretched for a perfect custom fit. Gorgeous, vibrant colors, soft pastels, gentle glitter or can't-miss designs and nail art. You have options. For about $12 a set, you can even get some free. Choose your colors or designs. Receive them in about three days. 
done. Everything you need is included. Polish easily removes and does not damage nails. Check it out. Nailsforme.com. Nails, the number four, M-E.com. That's nailsforme.com. Hi, I'm the executive producer of the Mentors Radio Show. Usually I'm behind the scenes, but I want to tell you about something special. If you're an entrepreneur like me, you need steady energy and focus. Here's my secret. I rely on science-backed, high-quality, bulletproof collagen protein and other bulletproof products. My sister told me about it. At feelgreat.vip, you can learn the health journey of Bulletproof founder Dave Asprey. Find out what sets these products apart from the rest. Nothing can replace the advice of your medical doctor, but good nutrition can absolutely enhance your mood, energy, and focus like it did for me. The demands of business, not to mention important time with family and friends, make steady energy so important. With more than 1 million fans, 1 million fans, I'm not alone in recommending Bulletproof. Go to feelgreat.vip. That's VIP, like very special person. Feelgreat.vip to learn more. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and today we are talking to former San Quentin death row chaplain, the Reverend Earl Smith, and now chaplain for the San Francisco 49ers and the world champion Golden State Warriors. Now, Earl, we were talking in the last segment about uh, the work you were doing on death row. And I did. I got to believe after some time, that's got to be pretty depressing. How did you what did you do for yourself to keep uh, keep doing it? Well, you know, I I started in '83, and the actual first execution was not until '94. And what I realized was there was no protocol, there was no procedure for how you that was written that would tell anyone how to minister for someone that was condemned to die. It was Robert Alton Harris. So for me, uh, what I did and what I continued to do with the other men after Robert was I needed I, I learned as much as I could about them. And I would constantly tell them, you're not your crime. You're convicted. You're condemned because of your crime. But that does not say who you are. The crime of who you are may be different. And for me, my goal was always to try to separate the person from the crime and try to, by doing that, introduce Christ. So, I mean, I did a lot of writing, did a lot of studying. I did a lot of prayer, talking with my pastor, uh, best friend of mine, Ben Hardister, uh, ministered on death row with me, and uh, we did every once a week. We'd go on death row, and we wouldn't leave until we saw every guy that was in our assigned area. And uh, so I had someone else that understood that worked with me, and that made all the difference. I really wasn't isolated, and when I had when I had to walk a guy into the chamber like Robert. Uh, my family, uh, they were praying for me. They were supporting me. I, you know, a real quick story. Before Robert was executed, I was telling them about my kids. My son was in favor of the execution. My daughter was against it. They were kids. My son was playing literally baseball. They were just little kids. And so I had a prison phone in my house. And one night, the phone rings that we have a dinner. It's Robert. He asked, can I speak to your kids? I asked my wife, it's okay. She's looking all weird. He tells my daughter, I appreciate what you feel. I appreciate the fact that you feel like it's wrong. The execution process is wrong. Keep keep following your dreams and your hope. He tells my son, uh, I hear you're a really great baseball player. And your dad brags on you all the time. He says, hey, hit a home run for me. And he says, I want to let you know something. You're right. You're right. You keep on believing that there's that this this whole execution process is probably right. So he told both kids that they were right, and uh, and and that's my, they're now thirty six and thirty four, and they still if they remember that and they held on to that. My son, who he said you're right to, is now a correctional officer in the prison system. Hmm. Wow. Uh, this is Tom Laurie. You're listening to the Mentors Radio. We're talking to the Reverend Earl Smith, who is the former death row chaplain at San Quentin. And we're talking about his experience uh, on death row. And we're going to switch gears now because he's also the chaplain for the 49ers and the Golden State Warriors. 
So with all of this experience in uh, your ministry in prison and then on death row, uh, today you find yourself as chaplain for the San Francisco 49ers and the Golden State Warriors. How does all this work uh, that you've done uh, translate to working with the pro athletes? I tell people all the time they laugh is prisoners have members, professional athletes have members, and in both cases you have to get beyond the member to the man. And so many people are hyped about the member. I mean, they'll go buy a jersey and put that athlete's name on the back of the jersey they paid a couple hundred dollars for instead of putting their own because they, 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 but they don't know the guy. And for me, it's understanding that many of the pro athletes that we get come from the same communities that the guy that are feeder systems for the prison system. Uh, Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, California, where there's larger prisons. Well, then they're also, that's where most of that, a lot of the professional athletes come from. So they're very similar. So you have to understand that there are some similarities. It's just one guy did not go in the same direction as another guy. Yet they they may have seen a lot of the same things. So for me, I just look at each person and look beyond the number. There are a lot of similarities. You just look beyond the number. And I imagine what we talked about earlier about jealousy and revenge that plays out a little bit on the in the pros as well, doesn't it? Well, it's 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 a lot different, and the reason it's different is because. A lot of times if you talk to a pro athlete, he'll tell you that he wasn't the best athlete in his neighborhood. There was some guy that got strung out on drugs or some guy that was selling drugs in up in prison who was better. So, uh, of course, there's people that have played ball that are jealous of guys that have more success. Uh, and Eagles, in order, in order to be successful and be a really top-notch athlete, you almost have to have an ego that makes you want to feel like you're the best. So there's some jealousy when you, when that other person may get more hype than you. Uh, but sometimes that's the kind of jealousy that drives you more, that makes you work out more. Now, one one of the things that you do, I think it's for the 49ers, is that before they draft players, you go out and talk to them? Yes, in some cases, uh, there may be someone that um, there's some questions about and I'll go, I'll go and have a conversation with that person uh, just to get a little bit more understanding of who that person is and try to come away with an evaluation. And I try to evaluate it uh, sort of like a profile, or I do profiling. And I did it in the prison system, and I do it with uh, athletes. And I try to give, I look for how that person may fit with the room, may fit with the coach and how successful they're going to be and what are some of the things that are going to be necessary to help that person be successful. So can you build a success team around them? So, I, I mean, I, I, I have a thing called life plan, and I tell every guy, you got to be on the board of directors. So the guys I work with, we teach them how to have a board of directors. It's like corporate America. So who's going to be on your board? Who's your finance guy? Who's the guy that knows the legal term? You know, you, you need to have those people on your board. Well, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about your work with the uh, concerned about recovery education, the work that your wife and you are doing, and then we'll close out. Uh, so we're going to take a break. Next up, uh, again, will be Reverend Earl Smith and his journey as team chaplain to the, to the 49ers and the world champion Golden State Warriors and the work he's been doing in the California prison system over many years. Better life, better business. Hi, I'm Christoph Naur. I'm a certified business and life coach, helping business owners increase productivity, profits, and improve personal life. I'm the founder of Balance 6. Money, health, relationship, time management, self-improvement, and higher power. I coach business owners to work smarter, not longer, to have time for better personal life. I hold you accountable for making time available to Balance 6, to nurture yourself and your relationships, and making more money with less stress. Get off the hamster wheel and I will show you the secrets to real success. 
In case you're wondering about my accent, I came from Switzerland more than 30 years ago. But I assure you, my coaching will be in excellent English. Visit our website at balance6.biz. That's balance6.biz. A lifetime ago, young naval aviator Tom McGuire took the oath of allegiance to support and defend the U.S. Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Now a San Francisco PD homicide inspector, McGuire hadn't thought about the oath in years, but that was all about to change. A famous local newspaper columnist had been murdered. For McGuire, there's an eerie chill of recognition about it, hearkening back to his days as a prisoner of war after being shot down in North Vietnam. A lifetime ago, another young naval pilot took that same oath. Also shot down in battle, he too spent time as a POW, same camp as McGuire. After 30 years, their lives were about to cross once again. But how and why after all these years? Multi-award winning mystery author Dennis Kohler's The Oath can be found online or for an autographed copy at oathbook.org. That's oathbook.org. Oathbook.org. Here at Mentors Radio, we've been working hard to help you succeed in every way possible. That's why we're proud to let you know about our newest find, BetterCreditDeal.com. BetterCreditDeal.com links you to a credit processing company, Cornerstone Payment Systems, that truly shares your ethical values and that can give you lower rates immediately. They don't just say it, they prove it to you. Their commitment to ethical behavior is rock solid. For example, unlike most other credit processing companies, something you may not have known before, Cornerstone refuses to process any porn-related business. They're not newbies either. The company we recommend has more than 50 years' experience and provides 24-7 in-house support. See what they can do for you today. Go to BetterCreditDeal.com. That's BetterCreditDeal.com. BetterCreditDeal.com. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and today we are talking to former San Quentin Death Row Chaplain, the Reverend Earl Smith, and now the chaplain for the 49ers and the world champion Golden State Warriors. Earl, I know that uh, you and your wife have a, uh, well, you run a transition house, and you also have a program about concerned about Recovery Education, which uh, you have an acronym called CARE. Can you tell us a little bit about both of those activities? Sure. The Transition House is really a a place to allow men that have done long stretches of time to be trained with life skills to transition back into the community. It's a sober living environment with family-style meals, where we actually are getting guys jobs, we're getting them back in school and enrolled for college or if they need to, but we're getting their license. Get, we're giving them the, the tools to be successful because in many cases, we put guys out of prison into society and they're not prepared, and then they have this word called recidivism. Well, for us, we feel we don't feel like that's an option, and the only way we address that option is through our house where we have been. We have a rec room with weights. We have a basketball court. We have a walking area. Uh, we, we try to give guys the freedom to understand that this is a great opportunity to be successful on the streets. So we do that, and our program, CARE, Concerned About Recovery Education, is actually what we go back into the prison system. My wife actually uh, does, teaches the class at the women's prison, uh, and we're just giving them life skills. It's, a, it's an accountability program where we, it's intrinsic motivation, cognitive restructuring, and so we write our own manuals, we write our own material, we have books for women, we have books for men, and we're, te- we're just trying to give them the tools to be successful while in prison in preparation for going home. And it's my understanding that some of the players, you've had them go to the transition house as well, and you bring ex-offenders uh, in as well uh, to provide some uh, uh, models for them. Uh, sure. Is that correct? Sure, we actually, sure, we actually have players that are uh, current players 
as well as players that are, have retired come into the transition house. They'll eat, the meal, eat meals with the guys, have conversations with the guys, and tell them about some of their pitfalls, some of the things that they're going through so that the guys understand that adversity is not a one-sided deal. But guys who you think they have it all are also dealing with problems, and they're having a struggle to fight over those as well. So uh, the athletes that come in are very helpful to me and, and encouraging, and, you know, they they end up going back and recruiting other guys. We've had guys going to prison. Every year we take guys into San Quentin. Uh, we we take them to different prisons, and everywhere they go, they they recruit, uh, recruit other people. My wife, we have ex-offenders. They actually go in and teach the, the classes that we teach with them. So in every case, we're trying to get the ex-offenders to be mentors and role models for the people that are in, both male and female. And if you had, based on all that you've seen uh, and learned and all the things you've done, if you had one piece of advice that you would give anyone, what would that be? I would say simply don't give up. Uh, that you may feel like that you're in the valley, that you may be going through something, but understand that every valley is attached to a mountain. So don't allow yourself to be a valley dweller. Do what it takes to get to the mountaintop. So you keep working till you get there. Don't give up. Well, we're out of time. I want to thank you, Reverend Earl Smith, for being with us today and sharing your example and the wisdom you've gained uh, by mentoring those who have lost hope and those who have achieved greatness in pro sports. Uh, Reverend Smith's book, Death Row Chaplain, Unbelievable Stories from America's Most Notorious Prison, can be found on our website. Remember, if you tuned in late, you can listen to this and past shows by going to our website, thementorsradio.com. That's thementorsradio.com. And when you are there, subscribe to future shows and listen to the podcast of this show. Thank you for listening. We will be back next weekend at this time for the next edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, on behalf of Rick Brudico and myself, Tom Laurie, be all that you can be and keep the candle lit for all who struggle in the darkness. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.